out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the legendary drummer, Hunt Sells, who, alongside his brother Tony, provided the rhythm section for Iggy Pop's Lust for Life and also The Idiot, and then went on to work with Tin Machine. Just a little bit of background. Um, Yes, he also worked with Todd Rundgren in these very early years, and he is the son of the TV comedian Soapy Sells that you may not know, or not, I don't know. Depends how old you are, really. But he has worked with lots of other people. So this is the interview. It's an absolute epic, um, and I'm incredibly excited. Just a word up, um, he's on his cell phone in Austin, Texas. I'm in Norwich, England. So the quality occasionally comes and goes, but it's generally good. It does drop three times, and I phone him back, so that's all good. Um, so also, he has got a new um, project called Hunt Sales Memorial, whose album came out last year. It's titled Get your shit together and it does feature the amazing single One Day. This has come out on uh, Fat Possum Records or a subsidiary for Fat Possum Records. Anyway, look, this was exciting. I was excited so I'm just going to get down to it um, or into it. So after several minutes of casual chat, like hello, thanks for giving me this interview, um, I started talking about the solo album and how it came together. And um, this is his response. Hunt, take it away. The, the, the reality, you know how the record business is. Um, and I really, at this point and for a long time, I've been writing and recording and doing, having a band and doing shows. But um, I never... With all the stuff, I must have five albums in the can. But I never thought about getting a record deal because I know that a lot of the deals, it's either you're a young girl or a rapper. You know, you see the stuff out there, the corporate stuff. And uh, somebody who's in their 60s to get a record deal, I don't think so. But I got a phone call from a good friend of mine a guy named Will Sexton. Are you familiar with Charlie Sexton, Will Sexton? Yes, Sexton I, Brothers? I can remember Charlie okay. well. Yeah, well, his brother Will, both Charlie and Will, I'm friends. I've known them for years. We've done a lot of gigs. I've done a lot of, uh, I did a couple records for Charlie, a record called Low Super 7. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um um, a few years ago, but Will moved to Memphis and I got a phone call from him and he said, why don't you come down to Memphis? And I'd been to Memphis before. It's a great music town and we all know what has come out of Memphis. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, Otis Redding, et cetera, Stax Records, a great music town. Um, so much different than, let's say, Nashville, Tennessee, you know what I'm saying, uh, which is more the country and all that stuff. So a lot of great records have come out of Nashville. So I, I go to Memphis, and little did I know, he had booked a gig for me to do. 
my own gig. And I found out about it, and I spoke to this guitar player I had, I had met years ago from Memphis. And uh, when I showed up in Memphis, he had put a bunch of musicians together, guys that had worked with Bobby Blue Bland, Stevie Wonder, et cetera, really great players. And I rehearsed for like a day or two, and I did my own gig down there in Memphis. And then uh, Will came back in town. I was staying at his house. He went out of town uh, with his wife, Amy, and they, they do a lot of gigs around the country. And then I did a couple gigs with Will in Memphis. So I was getting ready to leave Memphis, and he said, what are you doing next week? And I said, the same stuff, um, you know, I'm taking care of my kid, um, writing music. He said, why don't you stay another week? I said, okay. So several days later, I end up over at a recording studio owned by Bruce Watson, who is one of the owners of Fat Possum Records. You're familiar with that label, right? Yeah, because R.L. Burnside often was on Fat Pops. Exactly. So we ended up doing, me and Will did a little bit of recording, I don't know, some instrumental tracks and stuff. And Bruce was in there engineering, and his studio is, is in an old house built in 1870 or something, and it's built a little bit like Sun Studios across between that and, let's say, Stacks. Really nice. Um, some good gear. Nothing crazy, you know, real minimal. And I'm talking to Bruce. And next thing I know, he says, do you want to do a single uh, on my other label, Big Legal Mess? And I said, yeah, that would be great. And then I asked him, look, if I'm going to do a single, can I do two songs per side? I wanted to maximize it, yeah. you know? He said, yeah, we gotta, you got to keep each side under seven and a half minutes, you know, to fit on a single. I said, cool. So I said, you want me to do it I, with the Memphis people? I'll grab some cats here or, you know, people back home who work with me. This guitar player, Charco Jean. Yeah who's been working with me for years, he said, no, bring, bring your guys. So I come back to Austin, and then I go. I got two days in the studio there, and I basically come to Memphis, and I cut six songs in one day, okay? I cut a, the way this record was cut was I'd cut a song, then I'd grab whatever mic was sitting around and do a vocal, then I do another song and do a vocal, um, kind of old school, you know, none of this three or four weeks or two months or whatever in the studio. I cut six songs in one day. So later that night, I get a text message and Bruce says, well, I don't want to do the single. And I'm going, great. <laughs> he said, let's do an album. Let's do an album. <laughs> I went, great. So we cut the six songs, uh, worked on it for two days. I came back to Austin, and I sat for about 70 hours 
80 hours in that week or two, and I wrote a couple more songs. Um, I've got a big catalog of songs, but a lot of these were new ones I wrote for this record. And I went back to Memphis, another six songs in one day, and then the next day, some overdubs. Um, and then it was a succession of going back there a few times to mix it. So it was recorded basically, let's say, four days recording process. Yes. You know what I mean? Which, which is pretty fast. Um, it, it's a, like a lot of the Stax records were made. You know what I mean? Or Motown. Yes, um, absolutely. And, yep. and, and when, I, when I started back in the 60s making records, we made records, you know, we'd cut uh, a song, you know, get it done, everything in one day or two songs. Yes. So um, that's how it happened. And I went on the, I went on the internet on YouTube and I see this thing comes on. It must have been 10 or 15 years old, but it's, it's um, his other partner and he's driving a truck and he's saying, there's these, um, blues musicians down south and they're really interesting the guy you mentioned Burnside and they're older and then it clicked in my head I'm probably like a white version of those guys me being in my 60s you know what I'm saying and and Bruce saw the value in that Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting because I know when uh, it was Black Sabbath, I think they did their first album in 1971 or 72. And I think they just went in the studio and just did it in a day because they'd been playing the material live for years. So they, it wasn't like they had to do anything else. They just had to go and do it. So it was a bit like, oh, is, is, is that done? So obviously you, you had the same ability to be able to do it. And when you were writing and putting the songs together, because you said you, get, you had some that you'd got in the sort of the cupboard, but others you were writing kind of quite quickly. Did that come together quite smoothly as well? You mean the material? Yes, the material for the album. Yeah, it did. I mean, you know, it's like anything. It's, you know, years ago, um, I'd write a couple songs a year. (laughs) And then I realised after being around some songwriters, it's, it's 90% perspiration sometimes and 10% inspiration. You know what I'm saying? So um, I put a lot of work into writing a bunch of new material for this record. And, um, and it was new material that I had opposed to going, say, to, to a catalog that I have. Over the years, I've been recording and recording and recording, and um, with the attitude of, uh, well, if somebody hears it, great, but, you know, if they don't, I like it. Yeah, absolutely. It's for yourself. You know, there's, there's, when I got into the music, I was like six, seven years old, I started playing, and I didn't think about the music business, A&R people, you know, any of that, managers, record companies. And that's not why I got into it. I, I, you know, I probably got into it for all the wrong reasons, which were the right reasons. And it's probably the same reason what, why you do what you do. 
you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, because it's it's inter it's interesting because you come from a very jazz background don't you on, on sort of your musical influences because I know because to be honest you know my two one of two of my heroes is Lemmy and David Bowie and whenever they you know get asked you know who's your sort of your sort of you know the first person you loved it was always both of them said little little Richard I mean did you have a similar kind of work background with your kind of your interests because you said you started when you were six and seven was it people like that world of Little Richard that you saw, or was it a different kind of musical narrative? Well, I, I grew up in my house listening to Count Basie and Duke Ellington and and um, and stuff from New Orleans. And when I moved to California, I moved to California from Detroit. Uh, I must have been six, seven years old. And what was... This is, I'm talking right before the Beatles and the British invasion happened. Surf music was really big, okay? Now, a few of the people that made it really big in the surf um, genre, the Beach Boys. But I'm talking, you had the Trashmen, you had Dick Dale, you know, you had all, and surf music. But what really got me going was my father would make these comedy singing records. And I went to a session of his, and the drummer on the session was Earl Palmer. And when I saw Earl Palmer play at six, seven years old, I said, that's what I want to do, okay? Um, and then over the years, other people helped me out, inspired me, mentored me. There was a drummer named Shelly Mann. Was, I don't know if you know that name, Shelly Mann. Um, he played with Stan Kenton in the late 30s, 40s, and he was one of the bigger session musicians in California back in the 60s, 50s, you know what I mean? And he was a family friend. And he kind of mentored me a bit. And people like Buddy Rich, who I got to know, helped, you know, uh, would talk to me and, and give me, you know, I'd ask probably stupid questions, but as you do, you know, um, and he was so nice to me. And then all the other drummers that I was able to go see, Art Blakey, Billy Joe Jones, you know, so on and so on, uh, coming up um, and, and learning from them. But I've always been interested, and I've played jazz, like Jimmy Smith organ type of music. I used to do that back in the early 70s. Um, um, in the um, ghettos in LA, the, the clubs, the, the jazz clubs. I did that for a while, played jazz. So I played a little bit of everything, and I've studied a bit. Yes, so, but um, but you when I, you but, but 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 when you said you study a bit, I got the impression that you you've you're actually mastered your craft a lot more than most people because you because I remember sort of I was reading and listening to an interview you had where you were talking about people like. Colin Bailey and being fascinated with his kind of foot control or people like Ginger, uh, Freddie Ginger or, and you mentioned Buddy Rich. So you obviously, drumming wasn't just something that you thought, oh yeah, this is a bit of an easy gig. You obviously were much more passionate about it than most people who took up drumming. Well, yeah, I mean, it was everything to me, you know, um, music. Um, I mean, I've been playing music now 
for 60 years. Okay. And my first, when I went professional, I was 11 years old and I was living in New York and my brother and I were recording for roulette records. Um, a guy named Morris Levy, who owns Roulette Records. Uh, they had Tommy James and the Shondells and many other acts. And I got my experience then at 11 years old with a social security card and a union card. And, and so I'm 11 years old. And let's say Keith Richards or Mick Jagger, what are they? They're like, how old are they? 70 something? 74, I think, um, yeah. So I'm not comparing myself to them. I'm just saying, well, while I was 11 doing it, they're like 21. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so um, whatever that means. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but obviously, I, I mean, obviously having that kind of, because, you know, having a father that, you know, most people... The sort of, I mean, in these 60s and 70s, actually, and probably even before that, you know, you, you hardly ever saw your father because they would just be out the door going to work, they'd come back, they'd be tired, they would just you kind know, of want something to eat and go to bed. Whereas you would put the telly on and there was your dad, you know, on telly being this kind of massive star. So that must have also introduced you to that world of, that, that was and is showbiz and the kind of the excitement of that, that world. Exactly. At, at, at 12 years old, my, my, my parents split up. My father left. So it was, time, it was time to grow up. You know what I mean? Yeah, I come from a broken home. And, um, you know, like everyone's parents, I realized they did the best, you know, they did the best they could. And I, I understand that myself. I've been married several times. But at 12 years old, my father's gone. And basically... It doesn't matter what he did. I had to go out and get my own. Okay. You know what I mean? And even though I didn't go into, my father was a comedian and I didn't choose that route. I chose being a musician. Um, now having a father, I'm second generation. I guess you would say show business if you want to call it that. And it is part of it is, you know what I mean? And, Having a father like that, I was privy to see a lot of things at a young age that maybe most people don't. But um, yeah, it is strange. Eleven, being eleven years old, being professional, working, and and by the time I was fifteen years old, I was on my own. I, I left school, and I'm, you know, playing with Todd Rundgren. Yes, and which, other, which and you... other people. Which is quite an education because obviously Todd goes on to to produce people like Meatloaf and sell billions of records. So with working with those sort of guys, had they already become quite established? Because was it with is it Runt that you were part of? Yes, Todd. Todd had had a band called the Nas, and then um, and they were not a little bit popular. You know what I mean? Um, a little bit success, but then he went solo and. There used to be a club in New York called Steve Paul's Scene. And you would go, I would go to this club. I was 14, 15. And you'd walk in there and you'd see Stevie Winwood. You'd see Jimi Hendrix. These people would be hanging out, drinking or jamming. 
and or Janis Joplin, whoever, you know what I mean, Jim Capaldi. So I used to go to this club, and I go down to this club, and I meet Todd, and my brother's there, and we get up on that little stage, because people would jam and play there, and we ended up jamming with Todd, and um, it's just one of those things that clicked, and um, next thing I know, we're talking, and my brother and me and my mother were getting ready to move back to California, because my father and mom were split up, we're in New York, it's time to go back, and Todd said, well, I got a record deal, do you guys want to work with me on this record and it's like yeah so I don't know a month or two later we moved to LA back to LA and Todd came out and stayed with us at our house I remember he stayed with us for a while and uh, we started working on Runt Yes, which was quite interesting because up to then, I mean, the drummers that we'd been, you know, by the way, I was quite young then, but people like, there'd been Charlie Watts, who was very much a jazz, jazz drummer. There'd also been people like, um, uh, oh yeah, Ringo Starr, obviously. Um, so, th and then you had, you know, Jimi Hendrix and that experience, which, you know, that drumming was very different. So were you already looking at those guys and sort of wanting to take that kind of rhythm section that they'd created and, and so of course, of course, Ginger Baker and Mitch Mitchell and a host of, of British drummers, great, great drummers, you know, a lot, a lot of tradition comes from from England um, with the drummers, let's say 200, 300 years ago, marching, you know what I'm saying? And they're marching and they have the drums playing as they're marching into war. Yes, you know what absolutely. I mean? and, and, and it goes way back. And I mean, I'm not talking about Africa, of course, but but what the host of great British drummers. I remember I remember meeting Carl Palmer and I must have been it was right before I left New York, I don't know, maybe I was fourteen and he was playing with Arthur Brown, who had a big hit called Fire. And I remember going backstage, I just walked backstage and introduced myself. And 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 rap, you know, sat with a very sweet guys, sat and we talked about drums and stuff for a while. Great drummer. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a host of drummers from the UK and America that um, you know. Let's borrow this from this person. Let's borrow this from this person, and let me put my own spin on it. You know, I, I mean. <sighs> I, myself, my fantasy when I was young was to play with Count Basie or Duke Ellington or something like that. And of course, I get older, that stuff fades out. And, but the sensibility of those drummers that, that played with big bands is something that I borrowed also opposed to a lot of rock drummers that that maybe don't have that sensibility. Yes. You know what I mean? 
Because because I mean, a lot of them come in these incredible the kind of not to, you know it's the rhythm section isn't it you know like the the what you know Bill Wyman Charlie Watts you had also you had Mick Fleetwood and John McVie and then sort of during yes. the seventies and eighties you had Sly and Robbie from the reggae world Jamaica and and obviously you had Bill Wyman and and Charlie as well so the rhythm section kind of gives that band that kind of groove which is a very kind of I mean, whatever the rest of the band are doing, if you've got that, if people have locked into something quite special, at least as a member of the audience, you, you know, listening, there's something that's going to take you on the ride, isn't there? Exactly. I mean, you can take an average Dequamie band and put a really cool, great drummer and they'll sound great. But you can take a band that's really good and if you have a bad drummer, it's horrible. Yes. So that's how important. I mean, Charlie Watts, what the understated stuff that he will do and that he has done on on dozens and dozens of tracks is is what really, besides the other guys, really made the Rolling Stones. um, You know, opposed to let's say a different drummer, if they had some different drummer, you know what I mean? And, and, and then you take somebody like Keith Moon with the who, um, and I, I was able to see all these people go to, there were shows in New York where I'd see the who, and, and I remember seeing cream do their first gigs and seeing those guys blew my mind. Okay. And, and, you know, just like Buddy Rich and, and Art Blakey blew my mind. And it was like they set the bar, especially John Bonham, which I went to. There was a guy named, I, don't, I think he's still around, Richard Cole, who worked for uh, Jeff Beck. Um, and then he worked for Led Zeppelin. And we became friends. So I went to several Led Zeppelin gigs in New York and was able to sit on the side of the stage backstage and watch John Bonham play from the side opposed to watching him play from the front. And if you watch a drummer play from the side, you can really see what they're doing. You know what I mean? So these fantastic drummers, you know, well, I'm talking about world class, uh, that, that changed the game. And, um, it, it's, um, what an what an experience! Yes, you know, to so to see these people. So so one because I've done a lot of interviews with drummers over the years, and and there's been a few that have, are still struggling thirty years later with their experience with being in the in the studio with a producer, who kind of destroyed their confidence because they wanted them to play with a click track, and they really struggled with that and then you know the producer would say to the rest of the band or the songwriter look if we if we have the, them playing this is what it's going to sound like and you're not going to have the record sales without that person that you've been with for de- you know quite a few years and they're your best mate if we get rid of them and play with the kind of a more of electronic rhythm we're going to have a top yeah. 10 hit and how do you you know i mean what was your experience with those kind of producers and that whole world of click tracks and having to fit well, in with the sound I, I, yeah I, I i've done many sessions you know i had the opportunity after working with todd at 15 i started getting some phone calls to do recording sessions and and to me at 15 it was like, wow, I want to be on the road. 
You know what I mean? I want to be on the road. And let me tell you something. Cleveland, Ohio at 11 o'clock at night is not fun once you've done a gig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless you're at the bar, you know, drinking or, or, or doing something crazy. But um, I didn't pursue back then the session game, though I know it. And over the years, I've done a lot of sessions. I mean, I've worked with Bootsy Collins. I've worked with a lot of people that people wouldn't know that I did. And you can put a click track on. Uh, it doesn't bother me because that'll set the time and I can play around the time. But they have stuff they do to drums. I remember doing the guy's record and the whole record was cut and he wanted me to put drums on it. And it had a drum programmed drums when I showed up. So they pulled that off and I played these tracks. Now the tracks are starting to breathe because I'm offsetting it a little bit. You know what I mean? I'm putting, you know, moving, playing a little ahead, a little back, you know, same thing as any, any drummer that knows what they're doing to, to music. Then I hear the product and they took the drums. The guys, I said, how's it sound? Oh, it sounds great. I listened to it and they auto-corrected my drums. So it took, it took everything out of it. You know what I mean? That, that, that was good to swing and that the swing is, is what Ringo has. The swing is what John Bonham had. You know what I mean? How, how he, like, like a jazz drummer. And, um, you know, there's there's music, and then there's the music business. And the music business can get ugly, as you know, yes. and and stupid. And um, I mean, there's nothing better than when you put on an, an old Who record, and obviously the time, it's it's maybe speeding up a little bit at a certain time and then coming back a little bit and it's breathing and it sounds great. Those records sound great. And, you know, then over the years, you've got this, you've got the, the, um, Giorgio Mayalda, whatever his name was, oh, yeah. you know, the, this, the disco stuff and then production. And now you hear these records with it. It doesn't sound real. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's everything is so processed. And like you said, with, um, with the drums and everything and, you know, that's okay, I guess. But, um, it's, um, there, there is a difference in, and, um, I know I'm old, but, um, this Jimi Hendrix record still sound good to me. How about you? Yes, well, absolutely. And it was interesting because a couple of years ago, I remember a producer worked on some of those um, albums from the 80s, the two David Bowie albums, um, probably Tonight and Never Let Me Down, which, let's face it, weren't great. And then they took out that kind of 80s production sound, which kind of sounded really, I thought was pretty awful at the time and, and sounded even worse yes. with, with decades. So it sounded a little bit better. And then obviously... Then you do Tin Machine, which obviously gets that kind of groove and, and being in a, in a rock band where you've got that urgency again. And also at that stage with, with like a band like Tin Machine, you had the Seattle grunge scene coming along with Kurt Cobain and people like that. So obviously yes. that must have been quite a relief for you to have been 
here in sort of real rock, rock again after the sort of 80s period, which kind of a lot of people... Well, the interesting thing with the 80s, the, the artists who were kind of big before the 80s, like in the, say, 70s, kind of was sort of trying to follow the scene rather than lead it. And that was when a lot of artists kind of probably produced some of their not-so-great work to be diplomatic. And then they came out of it thinking, oh, that sounds awful, and let, and the hairstyles weren't much better at all. So obviously bringing in you know a band like Tim Machine must have felt like kind of a... Um, just a f lot of fun at that period because the 80s yeah, was... Yeah, well, t Tin Machine, basically, I, I was in Austin, Texas, producing, okay, over the years when I wasn't drumming, I was arranging and producing, okay, different people, wherever. And that, that was my hustle or my gig. And I get a call from my brother who had run into David, and David had just finished the glass spider tour, whatever that means, money. <laughs> so by the time I see David, now I work back with David in 75 and 76, 76, whatever, uh, with Iggy. And, and then years earlier I met him. But at this point, years later, after seeing David, he's done this he's done that he's got more money than god knows what you could do with and kind of to me making records that were you know product and and it's just crummy to me now david is a brilliant artist and you know i, I don't need to say that everybody knows that but he had come to a point where, you know, the money, the fame, and all that, and basically, Tin Machine was him in a room, at least with me, where he'd say to me, what do you think of that? And I'd say, not much. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know what I mean? Because partly because I knew him back... Basically, at sound checks, Iggy would maybe be late, and we'd jam, and we had a lot of fun back then uh, touring uh, um, with Iggy, and David was like helping Iggy, but playing keyboards in the band, right? So that the thing, the synergy, or whatever you want to call it, started then with him, me, and my brother. So I meet, I run into David years later, and we start this Tin Machine thing. And we start, basically, we go over to, he's living in Switzerland. We go over to Switzerland, we start recording. And it's definitely not a David Bowie record because I have my say-so. He's got Reeves, he's got my brother. And um, I said to David when I showed up there, I said, what do you think of Guns N' Roses? He said, who's that? <laughs> so he was a little bit in a bubble, you know what I'm saying? Yes. And, and clueless, he had become. He had become. I don't know. I mean, he's been around for a while, and and it can happen to all of us in our lives. Stale, I believe. Um, not doing his best work. So here now, it's back to basics. It's it's 
it's basically a garage band with a lead singer that's got $50 billion, you know, and we have a budget, but that doesn't change anything. I'm not working for him. I'm working with him. And there's a difference. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference when you're hanging out with your boss, say if you have a job, or you're hanging out with your mate, right? Yeah. And it was it was more like hanging out with your mate because I didn't give a, I didn't give a shit. I mean, I like some of David's stuff and other stuff I thought was shit. Um, and I told him that. And, um, you know, I respected him for being, he could be a very sweet guy, very talented guy, but he still had to be cool with me like everyone has to be cool with me. And, um, I, and I didn't work for him. I worked with him. We worked together. So it, that, that, that made that that made things different. You know what I mean? Here here we have is actually the closest thing to a band you can have. You know what I mean? Yes. Um so that that really we go in the studio and write stuff in the studio. We'd write maybe we'd record one, two, three songs a day, just write stuff and be jamming and really making music. Uh rather than David, you have an album due. Because I talked to him and I said, what's the deal with the last record or whatever? He said, well, I hired this guy and that guy and that guy. And I said, well, how long did you work on the record? Ah, about two weeks. So it, it had gotten that way with him um, after his big, big success. Now, I thought Let's Dance and that stuff was really on the mark. It was pop, but very clever and produced you know, the producer that worked with him, the guys from Sheik. Yes. Um, it was very clever. But after that period, in, in the height that he went to where he's playing Dodger Stadium, okay, what next? Another tour, more money, Pepsi commercials. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you can ask yourself, uh, whether you're David Bowie or John Schwartz working doing your job, whatever you may do, and if, if you're doing something, what am I doing? You know what I mean? Why am I doing this? Yes. What am I doing? Am I doing this for the money? How much money should I, you know, what, what shortcuts? And you take an artist, let's, let's take an artist like Nina Simone. I have never heard a bad record she's made. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, I don't think Nina Simone was thinking ever, but I, I don't know this for sure, what's going to be a commercial hit? What what can I do? You know what I mean? And that's that's the difference between music and the music business. Yes. And I guess it's, um yes, it's kind of making art or um, making money, really, isn't it? Did you, I mean, because there was kind of on the second album, you do a great song called Stateside. Did that come together relatively smoothly? Because you take the vocals on that, don't you? Yeah, I, I wrote that song at at my house in California. I had written that about a year earlier. And, and then I brought that in the same with um, a song called Sorry that's on the record and um i brought that in and and we we did it so uh david 
added on stateside, he brought in a little bit of twisted his and, and a thing that he was really good where he would take something and really go to, you know what I mean? Twist it, you know, right, right. <laughs> when you think you know where it's going and then it goes off to a really crazy place. You know what I mean? He was really good at doing that. Um, when he talks, when the song goes into uh, Kennedy convertibles and blondes with no brains, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that was, you know, that was his twist. That was his trip that he threw on it. And I went, cool, that's cool. I wouldn't have done that. Yes. It's a blues song. It's <laughs> a straight up blues song. But um, that, that, see, so, so there you see the collaboration. And I, I, I have writer's credits on quite a few Tin Machine songs, you know what I'm saying? Um, as being one of the writers on the material of Tin Machine. Um, but um, like The Who, like Led Zeppelin, and I'm not saying I'm any of those people, but Tin Machine was very driven with the drums. And when the tracks would be cut, when the drums were right, usually the guitars would be overdubbed, changed, the bass would be done, the vocals, okay? Yes. So we would get what whatever the groove, I would get it together, and then it would go like that, opposed to you listen to some music and it's just, it could be a drum machine. It's just a, pl a plodding drum beat you know what i mean like yes because what because on those two records actually you've worked with a there was a producer an english producer called tim palmer who i interviewed a few months ago he was a very funny chap i mean and but i think he was a drummer himself so he must have been quite good for you in that those sessions he, he, i'll tell you something about tim tim showed up after we established, I established the drum sound. If you listen to Tim's records, the drums, any other record, and Tim's a very talented guy, don't get me wrong. And he's a very sweet guy. And he was good. It was good that we had him there. But when he showed up, he looked at us and was thinking, what, what the hell's going on with the cross? If you listen to it on headphones, there's this cross bleed. And we were just doing all kinds of stuff in the studio, okay? So he was there engineering, but uh, producing, that record was produced by me, my brother, Reeves, and David, you got okay? Uh, you know, it was engineered by me, Tim Palmer, because I went in and set up the drums, got the drum sounds, prior to him showing up. Okay, that's that's how that went. <laughs> that was, was that was that was the, the the gig. Because obviously, I mean, you know, with David, he, he often talked about wanting to work with his Jeff Beck and he found Mick Ronson, but he also worked with like amazing drummers from Woody Woodmancy to Dennis Davis and yourself. And it's obviously mm -hmm. working with that kind of caliber or it must help bring out the best in everybody having those kind of musicians, but also having a, a having you and your brother who were the rhythm section 
obviously helps you know lift you like it did in 77 when you did lust for life because when because the, the thing is you only have to hear the intro to that and you know within less than five seconds what the song is you must feel incredibly well, proud of that the lust for life listen to tin machine and you you hear a thread there's a thread of the sound of the drums on, on iggy with me playing with iggy the same as there is with tin machine correct Yes. So I mean, I, I, not I, and I'm not here to to um, to put. Uh, I'm not putting Tim Palmer down at all. He's, he's very good at what he does. You know what I mean? Uh, he's got a very good sensibility, and I believe he was the right person to be there with us. Um, you know, um, his demeanor and his experience. But um, me, I, I, being an engineer, I engineer, and, and I've been working in studios since the 60s, okay? And like I said, the drum sounds and some of that stuff was stuff that I did in production, okay? And that's not to take anything away from Tim Palmer, but um, let's call it what it is. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, obviously, you know, this is the thing which is amazing with musicians and what I've learned from doing these interviews is that most people have a kind of a five-year narrative. You know, they, they get together at mostly in their late teens to 20s. Obviously, you started early. They have that kind of honeymoon period with the band. Then that first album, things are going well. The second album, things aren't so good. And then five years and it's kind of pretty much. And then they're broke and they're they've kind of fallen out with everybody i mean just on a personal mm. level how you know you obviously commit to the world that is rock and roll and the same with lemmy the same with david bowie i mean what is it that that you have that 99 percent of the other people who are into music get a day job and stick with music in the evenings okay i'll tell you what it is nobody wants to live the way i've lived okay i i it's like I don't have credit cards. Um, I do own a house. I live, I live in a section of town where I'm a minority, okay? And I like it here, but it's the ghetto. And I probably, I have lived my life, and not on purpose, but it just ended up this way, say the closest to the way, let's say a blues musician would live you know what I mean? Um, and who wants to live that way? I mean, so if if one doesn't care about having a 401k and a brand new car and a this and a that, I'm not I'm not saying my life has been horrible, but but it's been the music, and of course. I've raised some kids. I've been married a couple times. Um, and I've, I've been on the streets. And it's been, you know, there's been periods in my life that have been, that have been tough. And, um, and I'm telling you, it's like most people would go, I can't, I can't deal with that. You know what I mean? I mean, um, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you you probably had you probably had baked beans out of tins, haven't you? Cold baked beans. 
yeah, if I was lucky or I'd go be painting toilets, okay, I'd be going fucking digging ditches uh, when I wasn't playing. And then I walked by and hear a radio with a song on it. Um, you know, I didn't get in. I was so young. And like I said, I, I, I didn't get into music. Some people get into music and the, and the business and they're going to make money. And I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. I had to learn the hard way um, about about the business side of this thing, um, making money. I mean, I've I've got many many records out. I've made a lot of people a lot of money. Okay, and um, the ugly side of the music business, I have unfortunately had to deal with with not getting paid for lots of records that I'm on and people just being crooks okay I'm being honest and, well absolutely uh, that's yes the, that, that's that's the unfortunate thing and most people I've worked with have been crooks <laughs> okay that doesn't mean I didn't love them <laughs> and I wasn't sad when they died or went away or whatever they're doing. But um, it, it gets an ugly business and most people wouldn't believe, you know, the amount of money that people make. And, you know, when you have something to do with it and you do not get your share of it. So, I mean, I don't sit up at night and worry about it. I'm excited about today. I don't really care about my past and I'm looking forward to tomorrow, God willing. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But um but like I said, the the way I've lived like you said most people a lot of musicians yeah, they'll get it. Rock and roll it's a disposable a lot of it, you, you, you know, the people three, five years, six years, and they're out of it. And, um, you know, as a kid, I played in Vegas show bands, you know what I mean? Um, in Las Vegas, I played in soul bands and toured in Alaska and around the country, Bakersfield and country bands. I mean, this is all, all the, I came to Texas over 20 years ago and played every dump from from Austin to to wake up in Dallas to Houston to you know everywhere and blues clubs pick up gigs this is after 10 machine and tried to reinvent myself and 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 I guess pay some more dues and work on my craft you know what I mean and did and did you all kind of because you you sort of you studied, you know, drumming, rhythm, and, and, you know, jazz drummers, people like, you know, I remember you mentioned Colin Bailey and his foot control. Yeah. And did that kind of save your physical body in the sense of being able to continue drumming because you protect, you looked after yourself? Because I remember once talking to a, a singer who, on his second album, his, I think his uncle was in Electric Light, light orchestra and he said mate you've got to put some space in your songs because you're going to wreck your voice if you don't so he did he started putting more so did you also learn sort of tricks to think i've got to look yes, after this wrist? i did I, if if 
one could see underneath my snare drum, it looks like somebody's been sawing wood, okay? That's how hard I slam on the drums. But I don't have problems with carpal tunnel or any of that because I studied. I've, I started studying when I was seven, okay, with this guy, Bill Douglas, um, um, in, in L.A., learning the basics. And then I went to the Cozy Cole Drum School uh, in New York on 48th Street. You know what I mean? One of those places where you walk up the stairs, but in the middle of the stairs, it's so worn out from people walking up and down for 30, 40 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. And studied with an old big band jazz drummer. And I continued to... Um, Jim Chapin, he had a son, Chapin, the singer, you know, um, was big in the 70s, Harry Chapin. Oh, yes. Well, his father, Jim Chapin, was a great drummer. I studied with, with him. And then I finally hooked up with this guy named Freddie Gruber, who had broken down the technique that Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, and a few of these people use. And that's what I studied. I studied that technique because here I am, I'm 15 years old and I'm on a record that's in the top 10 called We Gotta Get You a Woman, right? Yes. And most people would figure, well, I'm on a hit record, I'm happening. And I went to this teacher and after one session with him, it was like, I'm either gonna really get my thing together or quit. And, and I just worked, I worked with him. I had quit school and basically I studied with him and I practiced six days a week, about eight to 10 hours a day for several years. Okay. I, I, it's like the 10,000 hour, um, thing, you oh, know, yes. putting in, um, and really worked on how to hit the drums and get the sound out of the drums and um, be able to play. So um, I think that has something to do with, at my age, I'm still playing. And I'm not only playing, I'm singing while I play. Yes. You know what I mean? I so, um, and uh, I believe that I'm better now than I was 20 years ago. Mm. Okay. Um, and I've tried to work on my craft and I, I still work on it. But the studying with Freddie, is really what put it all together, um, learn, learning what, what he had to teach. And a lot of the, you know, the drummer from Rush, he went to Freddie. Um, the drummer with Bruce Springsteen, he went to Freddie. And the story goes that John Bonham was playing with Tim Rose, right? I believe. And there's some story about maybe he studied a little bit with Freddie. I'm not sure, but it's what I've heard. So um, that's that's where I worked on the foot control and um, holding the sticks and the technique that I use. Mm. So um, it's helped me immensely uh, that that studying. I, I, I took from Freddie what I wanted. There were certain things I didn't want. And there's things that I wanted, and uh, he really helped me out quite a bit. You Absolutely, know, I'm, I'm a very, very grateful to that man.
Because, because I mean, just la- not lastly, but but you know, there's people like uh, another drummer called Hal Blaine, isn't he? Who's got some yeah. record for having the been drumming on the most number ones ever, and he sort of lived to his ninety. So there, there is something quite amazing about drummers and being able to sort of keep it keep it going and keep it real. Well, it's a physical. It's very physical. You know what I mean? And and you've seen drummers. And then you see them years later and they're like a shadow of themselves. You know what I mean? It's just, they change unless they keep in shape. Um, it's a very physical gig playing the drums, depending on if you're going to really bring it on. If I can't bring it on playing drums then I'm going to stop, you know what I mean? If I, if I can't bring it on and I can still bring it on. Um, and I'm hoping this next year, I can bring my band over to the UK and 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 play. I mean because I mean because you always enjoyed your vocal. I mean what was there any particular singer that you kind of was inspired by that you you sort of Yeah. Yeah. Um James Brown was a big influence on me. Um there's a lot of singers, Jackie Wilson, um John Lee Hooker, um Joe Williams, I mean, you know, there's some, uh, Nina Simone, just these great singers, you know, I mean, I just, um, just listening to them, getting, getting something from them. Um, a lot of the blues singers, you know what I mean? Um, but those are the people that inspire. I remember at about 10 years old, 11 going to the Apollo Theater. I used to go up to the Apollo Theater. I had this friend up the block that delivered groceries, a black guy that I was friends with. And he, I'd go with him up to the Harlem to see James Brown at the Apollo. And let me tell you, there's nothing like seeing James Brown in that atmosphere. Because I saw James Brown at, at uh, Shea Stadium and I saw James Brown at uh, the old Madison Square Garden from several times. But seeing him on, on 125th Street at the Apollo Theater was something else. It's unbelievable to see a show like that. And I'll tell you, seeing him and what I've seen, <laughs> it really messed me up because it jaded me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Yes. I mean, you know, what, whether it was them or seeing Led Zeppelin or The Who, which I saw several times, or Cream. I saw their first gigs in New York in a teeny club down in the village. And that'll jade you because, okay, I, show me something I haven't seen. Play me something I haven't heard. I want to see it. Believe me, I do. And, and uh, I want to hear it. I want to see it. But I don't see a lot of it, and I don't hear a lot of it now. Yes. You hear me? Absolutely. Um, but I'm grateful for what I've seen, and it's made me, it's, you know, um, whatever I am as a writer, singer, or player, it's, it's helped form me, all these great people that I got to see coming up, you know. Um, and how did you... I was going to say, yeah. I mean, because over the years, I mean, you've obviously had, you know, I mean, I suppose one of the interesting things, because you obviously had different decades where you, you were sort of 
around on a scene that happened and you know obviously when you were doing lust for life in 77 that whole punk experience had sort of exploded did you feel kind of excited by that and the world of cbgb's and max's kansas city did did that feel like you were in a in a moment a kind of a zeitgeist sometimes there's not much going on everything's a bit dull and then suddenly you're there and you know seeing that kind of scene of um yes the the, the whole what? the punk world that kind of exploded and, and yeah. sort of seeing the musicians around that scene as well. Well, I, I'll tell you, I, I can understand when I, when I was in England and saw what was going on as far as there were no jobs and, you know, like Johnny Lydon, No Future and all the stuff they talked about. And I could see that I could see how that scene manifested. You know what I'm saying? And then coming back to America and seeing a few people that look like punks get out of their parents' BMW. Where, you know what I'm saying? Where it, it became a fashion thing. So uh, I, I understand the roots of that, um, of that scene. You know, and they make sense. And it was real. It was a real thing. I mean, like, like a lot of things that start. But... Um, I never considered myself a punk, a criminal. Yes, I've been a criminal, but not a punk. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, straight up, and I'm not proud of it or anything. But you got to do what you got to do. But um, I'll tell you, when I when I showed up, I got a phone call from uh, some people who worked for David back in whenever it was seventy seventy six. And um, I had been on the road for like four or five years prior to that. I had a band called, with Bob Wells called Paris, okay? And I had toured with Ray Manzarek from The Doors. So I'd done both those gigs and, and been on the road just constantly for several years. And um, I was home recuperating I had gotten Bell's palsy. You familiar with that? What Bell's palsy is? Yes. And I was recuperating, and back in LA after being on the road for several years, and I got this phone call to come over and work with Iggy. And uh, I'm really glad I did to get out of the states, United States, and go over there and um, and work with David and. Um, for some part of it with Iggy um, and just to get out of America and, and have a change and which I don't know, it was two tours of Europe and America with, with uh, one, one with David playing keyboards. And then the next one with Scott Thurston joined up, but um, so we did two tours and, and uh, two one legitimate record, uh, which is Lust for Life, and then PBI, a record that's basically a bootleg record that they put out. Uh, I found out about that record when I was walking down Sunset. It was in a window, and I see this record. My name's on it. I went, isn't this interesting? <laughs> <laughs> he puts this record out and doesn't pay me. That, that's a beautiful part of the music business you know, along with about 50 other records he's put out and TV commercials and stuff. Uh, I've made Iggy a lot of money. Now, would you say the drums 
had something to do with that song, Lust for Life. Well, yes, that, that's, you know, before, yeah. the, the, before the vocal appears. <laughs> exactly. And that's what you hear on these TV commercials. And you hear it all over the place for years. A lot of TV commercials in places, plus a lot of live records that have come out um, that Iggy's put out. So um, I don't know. Uh, I hope he's having fun. You know what I mean? Uh, in F- Miami, Florida, where he lives. But um, uh, he's, a, he's another crook, you know, Iggy. Uh, basically, you know, uh, a talented guy, but a crook. But um, it was a good experience being in Berlin and uh, being there when the wall was up. Had a very desperate <laughs> vibe. Yes. You know what I mean? Because I, cause I went yeah. to Berlin twice, once with the wall, once without it. And it was interesting because I didn't realise, and I suppose I wouldn't have done. But I didn't, the reason there were so many radical people was that in Germany they had to do national service unless they went to Berlin. So anybody who was a bit like, actually, I don't want to go in national service, I'll just go to Berlin. So you did get a lot of radical people. Plus, I suppose you also uh-huh. got quite an interest in uh-huh. the history of Berlin with the whole Weimar Republic that had happened in the sort of 20s and 30s with cabaret. And then you had all the sort of the dra- yep. drag acts and drug acts and freaks. Yeah, and Romy they're... Hogg. You ever see Romy Hogg? No. Uh, uh, is a, is a woman, but a man, a woman, man, whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's a woman, but was a man. And Ronnie Hogg performed at a cabaret from the 30s. And we used to go down there. David was friends with Ronnie. So, yeah, I know what you're talking about. There's some freaky stuff in Berlin when that wall was up. And uh, I really had a lot of fun there. You know what I mean? Um, we did, we did rehearsals there for the first tour uh, to support, um, I guess, The Idiot. That's his first record with David that it produced. And then going back there uh, for The Lust for Life for that, you know, recording, which was pretty fast. And was that in the, you know? the famous Hansel Studios? Yes. And, yeah. what, and what was your kind of vibe with it because that's quite close to the the berlin wall you had all the the russians the other side with their machine guns did that sort of add a certain urgency to the the general sort of recording process yeah i mean you know i fly for hours and hours to get to Berlin from los angeles and i get a phone call <laughs> in the morning and when i arrived there i went over and saw a pile of mine who lived near the hotel where I was staying, somebody I'd met. So I get some, I'm sleeping, it's like 10 in the morning, hey, come to the studio. I hung up the phone. I mean, they had been there for <laughs> months. You know what I mean? I jet-lagged. I eventually made it down to the studio in the afternoon and started recording. So you know what jet-lag is like. Um, but basically, we get in the studio And Iggy had some ideas. He had a few songs, but basically all the, a lot of the songs were, uh, no, yeah, that's good. No, yeah. You know what I mean? You see what's going on. Everybody's putting songs together. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, Iggy's writing the lyrics, of course. I gave him a couple of ideas for some lyrics. They end up on some songs. But, um, 
it's funny. I, I've got one song credited writer on that album, and I'm playing bass on it. It's called Fall in Love with Me. Oh, the last song. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, but that record, we must have done that record. My work on that record was about four or five days. And we were, I was done with the drums. I was done, you know, the rain tracking. So I had to wait to get out of Berlin for like four, four days to get a flight out. You know what I mean? Yes. But, uh, it went pretty fast and a lot of stuff was just put together in the studio. And it's, you know, it's, it's the same. You get a holdover from, from that tin machine, you know, the same kind of thing going in the studio because all of David's experience, all of my experience, my brother uh, making records for so long where you can go in a studio and just write songs and, in the studio, you know what I mean? It, yeah. Just put it together. Maybe you have a couple of ideas, but opposed to pre-production, let's say you go rehearse for a few weeks and, okay, here's the eight songs and let's learn them and work on parts and this and that. You know, there's that way to do a record. And then there's the other way to do a record, like a lot of people can do, where they just go in the studio and write the stuff right there. You know what I mean? I guess it takes a lot of pressure, actually, to sort of do it so last minute. But then, you know, I suppose that pressure and deadline can sort of produce something quite special. Because at the same time, I mean, Lust for Life was happening. And then also at that same time, you know, Bowie David was also doing the Low album with Tony Visconti and Brian Eno. So did you have that feeling that this is quite an amazing creative time happening, you know, because you must have been able to pick that vibe up of, of so much going on. Um, I was aware that I was doing what I do, you know what I'm saying? And um, doing what I do, show up and, and, and hopefully come up and and contribute my bit, you know what I'm saying? And put my flavor. And like I said before, unless I'm wrong, if you listen to Lust for Life, you listen to Tin Machine, you listen to the Hunt Sales Memorial record, is there a thread that goes through these three records? Well, absolutely, yes. And I have to say, your, okay. your, your single One Day is, is quite a stunning song, isn't it? Let's face it. Thank you. You know, I've had, I've, for me, um, one of the greatest things that I've gotten back from music is definitely not money. It's been someone writing me or sending me a message that I don't know and saying, thank you, you inspired me, or thank you, I, I like the song that you wrote, it touched me. And that's to me, is, is worth more than anything. You know what I mean? That, that um, I make music for myself that I like, okay? And I don't try to figure out what, well, if I do this, these people will like it. I don't, that's not where, I've never been like that. But to get, have somebody say, you influenced me, thank you. I mean, it touched someone you don't know from 
Brazil or Italy or just, you know, Cleveland. It's just such a great feeling, you know what I mean? Um, to, to, that, to, uh, to receive that, you know, to receive that, that love. Yes, absolutely. I mean, did you, I mean, because obviously, you know, there's a lot of, you were part of that kind of world that was kind of, had a lot of kind of sex and drugs and rock and roll, probably. But, you know, it's definitely, definitely the latter half. But what was the bit, I mean, was there a moment in your life where you really wanted to kind of stop that side and, and, and clean, you know? Yeah, there was. I, I, what, what basically, I was a musician that did drugs. And I became a drug addict that did music. Okay? And, um... I'm talking a long time. I'm talking about maybe 40 years. And that's a long time, statistically. Yes. You know what I mean? To be a drug user every day. And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not proud of it. Uh, it's a problem that a lot of people have. It's a problem that I've have that I've had. Um, I'm sober now, and uh, Jesus, it's a hard job. <laughs> it's a hard job, but um, I was one of those people that would show up and do my job, and it was my problem. I did not make it other people's problems. Okay, and. Um, there's been things said about me that are untrue. And, um, you know, Tim Machine and David and the people David has working for him, we were playing small venues, Tim Machine was. And um, compared to the 15, 20,000 theaters a David Bowie concert would, would be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, Tim Machine running its course and the promoters and people were very happy that David Bowie went back to being David Bowie playing 15 and 20,000 seekers because they make money, okay? They don't make a lot of money on 1,000 seekers, <laughs> 2,000 seekers. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Absolutely. And that's a reality. That's a reality and that's the truth. So there was going to be another Tim Machine record, but it did not happen. And that was it. You know, and we all went on our way. Now Reeves, he stayed with David after Tim Machine. And um I can't tell you that uh, it enhanced David's musical side. You know, I mean, I think the I think the last record or so that David made before he died were great. His last record was great, but um, I think. There's a lot of stuff. I don't know. I don't get it. 
you know what I'm saying? Yes. Well, I think there was um, there was definitely a sense. I think with 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 the kind of um, yeah, I suppose. I suppose, like you were saying, in the 80s, there was definitely a period where, you know, like with a lot of those kind of established artists, they they weren't sort of leading what was going on. They were suddenly following what was going on. And, and, they, yeah. kind of, and they looked quite dated quite badly, especially with the, the hairstyles. And I know that when, you know, was it the album Hours that came out that David did? I suppose that was kind of a period when he was probably going to be doing more Tim Machine stuff at that point, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I just seen videos and stuff after Tin Machine, and it's like, what, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? What, what he is doing is he's got a lot of people that are working for him, and oh yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. I love that. He doesn't have anyone saying, you know what? That fucking sucks. <laughs> You know what I mean? And and it's it can turn into a little bit of the emperor's new clothes. You know that story. Yes. Okay. And 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 that's how I perceive it. Now, someone may disagree with me, and I'm not taking. I, I don't mean to be taking anything away from David's talent, but um, um, I I in my opinion. Um, you know, he's hooking up with Trent Reznor. He's got a soul patch. He's doing this. He's doing that. Now I know a lot of fans that love him for whatever he does, like a lot of artists. I understand that. But, um, if you really look at it, what was he really, was it really, was he really challenging himself? Maybe he thought he was. I don't know. I couldn't hear it. Okay, I don't hear it, and and like I say, when when you know, I didn't know that uh, I had heard something about him not being well, and then this record comes out, and there's talk about a tour. This Black Star record comes out, and I hear that, and I go, Jesus, but what a great piece of work! But you're gonna probably write something really great if you know you're getting ready to die. You know what I mean? Mm. And, he, and nobody, he, nobody knew. The record came out and a few days later, he's dead. Um, and, you know, private person, I respect that. But um, there's a lot of stuff he did I thought was beneath him as far as what I know he's capable of. You know? Yes, absolutely. What he was capable of. But you know what? It's only human, and uh, aren't we all? <laughs> so, yes. Know. So did you, I mean, yeah, I was I was just kind of curious, because you obviously had that that period where you must have, you said 40 years. Did you have a, a kind of a, an epiphany, epiphany moment of just thinking, right, I've got to clean this up? Yeah, I mean, you know, turning into a criminal... And um, and criminal activities and stuff. Yeah, I, I just got to a point where it was like, uh, I, this has got to stop. I, I wanted to, um, and I was still working and doing records and stuff, but but 
you know, having a drug habit, and uh, there's only a few ways it goes. You either die or you go to jail, and um, and, and your life just turns to crap, and um, it was getting really strange, and I just got to a point where, and it was, it, it took a while, it took a while to work myself out of all of it, but um, I finally did, and, um, and and I'm happy I did, and why did it take what it took? It, it takes what it takes, you know what I'm saying? I, I wish I had, I sometimes think about, I'm not much, and I don't want to, but it's like, well, why did this go on for so long? And then it doesn't matter. All that matters is that I'm here today and I made it out alive. Yes. One of the great, you know, the great survivors. I mean, does that, I mean, do you still occasionally play music with your brother? I mean, is there any kind of, um, he's, he's no, he's, he's out in California and I'm in Texas. So, we talk, we talk a lot, and uh, but no, no, nothing, nothing. Uh, you know, I don't see. I haven't seen him in quite a while. Um, I saw him, Jesus, maybe seven years ago. I took a trip out to the West Coast. I was out there working on a record or something for somebody or something, um, and I saw him. But uh, no, not since Tin Machine. No, that, that's the last time we we have uh, worked together. Yeah. You know, um, I at least spent you know quite a few years working together and playing. You know what I mean? Playing in my bedroom, all the way up to you know all the Todd and and Raymond Zurich and then Biggie and then. Tin machine. So, you know, over the years, but um he's not very involved in music, you know what I mean? And I am, and I have never stopped. Though people may not have known what I was doing, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm in I'm in Ohio working with Bootsy Collins or Detroit working with someone else over this past twenty years. I've continued recording and, you know, whatever, since Tim Machine playing and recording and going here and there and producing records and working on stuff. So um, that's that's what I do. Yes, because recently, actually, I did an interview with a guy called Tom, no, Tim, Tim Scott McConnell, who was in this band called The Rock Cats, and he did a track which um, Bruce Springsteen covered called... Um, God, what was it called? High Hopes. And he, he's kind of, he does something called Gothic Blues and he's now in his 60s. And, he, you know, he's really hated the record industry because it's kind of completely ripped him off. But he just loves playing music still. So I think he's relocated to Iceland. I think that's where I tracked him down. I mean, do you, do you still feel like you've still got your best work in front of you? Oh, definitely. I've got, I've got a record ready. I mean, I don't have a deal now. Speaking to a few people, but um, uh, um, I've got a new record to put out, and this record—I'm not going to say it's 
it's better than the record um, for Big Legal Mass, the Get Your Shit Together record, but I think it'll surprise some people. It is a really, I'm really proud of it, and I'm hoping to get it out this next year, you know, and get this next record out. Yes. Um, um, and like I said, we'll see what happens with the world and, uh, and the problems we have, but I certainly want to come over uh, to England and, uh, you know, all the, the great places that I've been, that I enjoyed, Newcastle, Manchester, um, you know what I mean, London, and, and every time I've been over there, I felt at home, yes. you know what I mean? Because I can, I can remember Tim Machine came to Cambridge, actually. I managed to catch you live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The fine place of Cambridge. So there you go. It must have been, it must have been kind of fun touring that kind of um, show, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and I, unless I'm wrong, but, you know, you go to Europe and places like England, and, and Manchester, these places, London, and they still, I mean, they, they still, I think that maybe they got a better thing for rock and roll now than in the States. You know, I don't know. I'm not over there, but I get the feeling from people I know that go over there and play. It's, 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 there's a lot of stuff here. It's about, not in Texas, not here, it's blues and all kinds of music. It's a good scene. It was a good scene before all this stuff happened. You know, that's why I moved here. But um, in America, it's, it, 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 it's, and maybe this is a good thing, that rock and roll is almost like an outlaw thing. It's outsider music now. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, you've got... This dance music and trap house music and stuff is, you know, produced music yes. that we were talking about earlier. And it seems like rock and roll is on the out, is outsider music, yeah. which maybe is a good thing, which maybe is a good thing. You know what I mean? Because something good will happen. But, um, yes, well, as, as Lemmy used to always say at the beginning of a concert, we're Motorhead and we play rock and roll. And that was it, really. He just, it, it was always, it was always about rock and roll. It wasn't about, Heavy metal or thrash metal, it's just rock and roll, isn't it? And that's what it's about. Exactly. And you must have, I mean, because yeah. you've, you've had those conversations, conversations with everybody in the world that is kind of, um, has, has kind of shaped popular music and popular culture. I mean, is there any particular person that did have a really profound effect on you for the, you know, that a particular conversation that happened or comment? Well, I've met so many people throughout my life. You know, Lemmy, he was a very sweet guy. And, you know, <laughs> I remember running in. He used to go to this place called the Rainbow, this bar on Sunset. He lived up the block from there. <laughs> and he's, <laughs> I remember he said to me one night, you, you keep switching bands. <laughs> he's right about that. I mean... <laughs> You know, the, the, the problem, the, the thing I see and that I noticed, I did this gig when I was in the band Paris, and we, it's somewhere in Ohio or somewhere in a small theater, and we're supporting this act, and the act 
This must be 1974, 70, how did it be 73, 74, I don't know. And this band, I, I meet them, and the drummer was so nice. He says, man, I really like what you did with, um, with Todd, and I said, thank you so much. So I go out to watch them, and they're the headliner. And it's, this band is called Rush. <laughs> and the thing that, that I've seen and different from, from, from my career is that bands like Rush and uh, Metallica, they just, and, and Lemmy, they just kept going and going and going and going and did not give up. And I really respect that. And that's that's one thing that maybe I've missed in my career as far as having something like that. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, um, so, and I'm happy with my career, what, what I've done and all that stuff. But um, I've noticed these people that go out there now, now, Rush, it must have been 1,200-seater, but I noticed them, they never stopped. And then eventually, they're playing gigantic places, and they're a gigantic band, and they did it their way. And I and I was never a fan of Rush, but I respect them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know they came over to, to England and did well over in England. People dug them, you know what I mean? Um, but... I just respect these people that just did not stop. And I think that's one thing I, I learned as a general thing, opposed to, you know what I mean? I, I've heard a lot of things. Uh, I can tell you one other thing before we're done that someone said to me, but that, that I noticed these people that don't stop, that eventually, and, and there's no promises in this life. We're not guaranteed anything, but, but you know what I mean? That have this success as far as their musical success and their vision, you know? Um, I was in this drum store and um, the drummer, Joe Jones, that played with Count Basie, if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Well, he was teaching there or something and he'd be hanging out. And I'd run to Delvin Jones there and stuff. And he said to me, he said, you know what, son? He said, there's always a party going on. And basically what he was telling me was, screw that stuff, work on what you have to work on. You know what I mean? It was really good advice. <laughs> yes. There's always a party, party going on. And, um, you know, so it's like anything. Uh, you get what you put into it. You get you can get out of it what you put into it, and I'm not talking about money or this or that, but I, I'm just saying you know um, some self-respect and and doing a good job, and at the end of the day, isn't that what's important? Was that the kind of point where you you had a bit of a life change when you you developed that kind of self kind of respect? Yeah, well, I mean, when I turn out the lights at night, I feel good, you know, and it, it's not because uh, of the money I didn't make, and it's not because, it's because of, 
I've tried to keep it real and I've tried to just the journey, you know, this journey, this journey that we're all on. And um, I don't know about the destination. <laughs> I've thought a few times about some destinations and then only to hit a wall and then start over again. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, j- just the journey, uh, the journey of, of life and um, in music, you know what I mean? And, and there's, like I said, there's music and then there's the music business. And they're two different things. They they can work together, of course. But you understand what I'm saying about that? Yes, well, absolutely. There's the people who know how to write a contract to screw the artist, I suppose, isn't it? Let's face it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I play for myself. And then after that, okay, I'm here to play for the crowd. And I don't care if it's 20 people or whatever. You know, last year I went on the road in Texas and Jack White was touring the Rock and Tours and he pulled me on three dates opening for them. And he was very, very sweet guy. You know what I mean? I met him about 10 years ago and uh, he ended up asking me to, to do, you know, to do these shows opening, which was great. And he treated me well and everything, you know, production costs and all that. And it was, it was awesome. But when I showed up to play, I, sh- I showed up to take no prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And if you open for somebody like that, you know, every, most people are there to see him. But, um, I tried to get down the first minute or two. I was on stage and get the audience with me. And I remember him saying to me, which was really nice to hear. He said, you know, most people that open for us, we got to tell them like, come on. And he said, would you, he said, man, it was the real thing. And uh, very sweet, (laughs) very sweet. Yes. And did you ever, I mean, did you, I mean, you, I know a lot of people, because in this country we had, you know, like gatekeepers, I suppose you had people like John Peel, this DJ, and then we have the music papers like The Enemy and Melody Maker and Sands. Did you ever do any kind of recording, you know, at the BBC? Because there was a famous studio called Maida Vale, which, you know, was often... Hello, I know, God, you're fine. But that's... Yeah, no, I just wondered if you ever did any of those kind of John Peel sessions with any particular band or artist or whether you just unfortunately never made it. Because they were always produced by this guy called Dale Griffin. And um, he he was a drummer in Mop the Hoople. And everybody who who was the drummer in these bands loved him. But he really hated everyone else in, in the band. <laughs> it was one of those people that everyone had a bad experience with Dale Griffin, but um, apart from the drummer that, that you know, they always got on well with him. <laughs> yeah. Were he producer? Yeah, well in the eighties, I think when he kind of wasn't in Mot the Hoople anymore, he um became this kind of producer for John Peel the John Peel sessions that was this, you know, the guy who was a DJ in, in the UK. And I just wondered if you ever did any of those sessions in the UK with John Peel at the end, the John Peel sessions. Not Um I don't think so. With BBC. Yes. You know, we did that. Um but no, 
I, not that I know of. Yes. We did that, and we did Top of the Pops. Is that the show? Yeah, well, there's Top of the Pops, which is at the BBC. So obviously, you were you had your sort of moment there as well. So that um, that must have been fun. So look, what would you say if you could? You know, with all the experience you've had, you know, to an a, a, say if you could have said something to your eighteen-year-old self starting out, what you know, you could have just whispered a couple of things with all the wisdom experience. What would you have said to them? Well, you know, you know, you can't tell anybody that's eighteen years old anything. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I have kids and. And I have a 30-year-old daughter who's a great artist and and does work for different, you know, publications, pieces and stuff. And um, I learned a long time ago, if somebody asks me, I'll, I'll share whatever I can with them. But, you know, you can't tell anybody anything. I mean, they, it, it, I mean the older I get, the dumber I feel, which is kind of good because maybe I can learn something, you know what I mean? And when, when, when people are young, you know, the, the thing where they know it all and this and that, but, um, the thing that I was talking about earlier about not stopping and, and, you know, you, you, you've got to develop some really thick skin being in, in the music and the music business. It's rough. And you have to have thick skin and be prepared and not be in a hurry. I speak this, I know some, some musicians and they want to do this and do that, but um, you got to pay your dues. You know what I'm saying? And um, they, they want to be a, um, they want to be a Jim Kelpner or they want to be a whoever. I mean, that takes time. You know what I mean? Yes. And and it's like, um, I, I considered, it wasn't until I was playing for about 18 or 20 years that I then really started to get it. You know what I'm saying? Now I've been playing for 60 years. And um, I don't think I have it all the way, but a lot more than I did when I was younger, you know what I mean? But uh, the thing about not giving up, and um, it, because it's rough, it's it, it's a, it's it's rough being a musician, you know. Um, and like most artists, whether it's visual or musicians or whatever, you know, people that aren't musicians or are, are creative in that way. You couldn't pay somebody to go through the, the bullshit you have to go through a lot of the time, the stuff that I've been through and had to go through dealing with different situations and just, you know, they're not making the money, the, the bad gigs, the bad food, the bad traveling, the this, the that. But, you know, you're, it's more like you're driven to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like whether it's, you know, these artists, Van Gogh, who couldn't sell a painting, and now his paintings are 50 million. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But yes. Basically, that, that, 
people need to look back at these artists and people like, you know, way back what, what they had, because it's not that much different. I mean, you don't have to cut your ear off and you don't have to go through what I went through being on this, you know, running the streets and, and doing crazy shit. Um, but, um, it's, it's not an easy thing. So, you know, if, if you're 18 and you're preparing to be a dentist, if you're not even that good of a dentist, you know, you're going to be making 30 grand, 40 grand a year when you start. Right. But, but let's say you're, you're going to be a musician or a painter. Now you could record or have your band and do some stuff and nobody likes it. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and I'm saying you could be good, but maybe people don't understand it. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and it just doesn't happen. So it's unlike certain vocation. I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, I don't want to get pompous and go, well, I'm an artist. I I play the drums. I sing. I've learned how to, how to arrange music and produce and work studio, you know, work, work and work recording studios, work the gear and everything and edit tape, write songs and all this stuff along the way. And, um, it's really been experience, a God-given gift, and a desire. And um, some people have more drive than others. And um, sometimes I've had a lack of. See, you ever see people that have a lot of drive but not much talent? <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing, so you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. And. Um, you know, I, I, I'm the guy that's recording and writing and stuff, and nobody will hear it, or maybe they will hear it. Like I said earlier, when I got lucky and got that record deal, and not that I, not that it's I got some good reviews. People seem to like the record, but you know, it, it's not a top anything, top ten or top anything. It's out there, and I think slowly people will hear it. You know. But um, it's um, it's not for everyone. <laughs> um, it's it's for those that that um, they have this desire to do it and they won't stop. You know what I mean? It's it's a crazy thing, really. Opposed to a lot of other, you know, I'm going to become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, it's it's such a weird trip because it started so young for me and I was just, you know, whether I, in, in the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was doing it and you couldn't tell me not to do it. And every day I'd come home from school and just beat on my drum and listen to music and just that's all I wanted to do. And then I started doing it and all the hardships and the way I've had to live and stuff and like i said a lot of people they don't want to live that way you know what i'm saying um it can be hard you know 
but um and did you i mean because because the interesting thing is because obviously it's kind of amazing that your your father had this kind of you know he was a huge star in the 60s wasn't he and um I mean, but he managed to survive quite a long time. Did you, did you manage to have a, a a decent friendship with him during that that you know the latter part of his life? I didn't see him. We spoke. I didn't see him the last. I saw maybe seven, six years, seven years before he died. He got a star on Hollywood Boulevard, and I came out to California. Um, I didn't. I guess I was in Texas to be with him, and I and I didn't realize what the, the shape that he was in. You know what I mean? Being older and and getting more frail. But um, over the years, you know, he left. I was when I was eleven, twelve years old. He left, and um, I would see him occasionally. You know, um, and I loved my father and my mother. And uh, he did the best he could. And me being a parent, you know, you can learn a lot from stuff that's like not right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. I I have a, I have two daughters. I've got a, a 13 year old, and I've got a 30 year old, and they're from different wives. And I'm very close with my 30-year-old and my 13-year-old. And I learned a lot from what I did not receive myself. You know what I'm saying? Um, I would call it maybe when I was younger, emotional abandonment, okay, that I went through. And I learned from that. You know, you can, you've got artists that were that were screwed around and stuff, right? And then they make it. And then they do the opposite how they treat all their people, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And then you have people that were screwed around and this and that tough, and then they make it and they proceed to do the same thing to everybody else. Okay, so which way do you want to go? <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think you'd want to. Um, you'd hope you do the right thing. You hope you don't exactly, become... exactly. And and, and 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 you know what? Um, my father worked, and his career was very important to him. Um, but um, I certainly have tried to treat my children a little bit different, you know, and be there for them uh, a little bit more. And um, I'm not upset at my father. I love my father and my mother. And he did the best, and my mother did the best they could. You know what I'm saying? They really did. I, I saw that at a young age. You know, I was very fortunate to be able to realize that at a young age. You know what I mean? Rather than growing up and blaming anything bad that, that I've done in my life is my shit. And I'm not blaming because mom and dad did this or this person did that. That's bullshit. I own my, I own my stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Absolutely. And it's also, it doesn't make you a, a very attractive person. I'm talking about personality if, if one becomes too bitter because then that person just, you know. Exactly. Exactly. If, if only needy and desperate were attractive, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, it's quite, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, you must, I mean, you must somewhere in, in, in all this think, I should write a book. Because you're, you know, it is quite a boggling story. I mean, not many people have, you know, the father like yours, and and the story, you know, the music industry that you start at the age of, you know, six, eleven. You know, you also had was it one of the Beach Boys wrote you a letter as well, which was quite extraordinary. Yeah. You hung out with people like Jimi Hendrix when you were very young, and saw Steve Winwood, yeah. and, and people like it that. Was That's very nice to me. It was quite an extraordinary. And then you worked with people like, you know, Jim. David, you know, went into various other production work, you know, as well as Todd Rundgren, who became this kind of mega star. Well, in a way. Um, and then, you know, the Tim yeah. Machine. <laughs> well, I suppose his work, I suppose he became the producer, didn't he? He was that guy for a while. Yeah, I mean, you know, you see people, they get older, and, um, and Todd, very talented guy. I don't really understand. I mean, he's out there doing the best he can, and he's touring, I guess. I saw something where he's going to tour and play. But, um, um, you know, God bless him. That's what I can say about him. You know what I mean? As they say in Nashville, God bless you. And you know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But, um, you know, um, life... Life is strange, man. (laughs) (laughs) Life is very strange. I mean, yeah, fuck it. This year's gone even weirder, hasn't it? Let's face it. Isn't it? It's even stranger now. Yeah, I know. Just when you thought it couldn't get fucking worse. Um, But you never know. Perhaps next year, you know, there'll be a change of the president, perhaps a vaccine, and things will just get better. Who knows? Fuck. You know, I'm so... This is, I'm not, you know, super political or any of that stuff. Um, but what's happened here with with people coming out and voting is this, you know, this year and all the first time voters and people that are, that are changing what's going to go on in this country. And I think... I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the the the, the, uh, the new president and vice president, especially. You know what I mean? Having the first woman vice president. I know. It's just, this way. I think it's it's going to be good because all I've seen in this country is some horrible shit. Divide and conquer. And that reminds me of this guy from Germany back in, uh, what was it, 39, <laughs> yes. 40, whatever, you know, up to 49, 45, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, and, absolutely. And instead of, instead of my people, the Jews, it was the Hispanic people or whoever, and it's been horrible, and it's disgusting what has gone on here in America as far as that kind of mentality and hate. And we don't need that. And the whole world is watching. You know that. Absolutely. And, um, and, and, and 
things, you know, I, I think things are going to be better. And um, uh, this ain't Russia. And this is not China. This is the United States. And you got somebody saying, let's make America good again. Well, go fuck yourself. America is great. You're, <laughs> you're the problem, motherfucker. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So that's what I got to say about that. I know. And um, I think people all over the world feel the same way. Yes, I know. Hopefully we won't see Steve Bannerman ever again. That would be a relief. Oh, definitely. It's de- <laughs> definitely the, it, it's going to help. It's not going to hurt. You know? <laughs> yes, this is true. It, it's, it's been, you know, it's been really bad. It's been really bad here. And, and, and you've got people that just can think they can say anything and lie and make stuff up. Come on. I mean, I was born at night, but not last night. <laughs> You know, yes, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I think I think some good things are going to come. This is good. Well, look, I, the, I know. And I, just just going back to your last album, you know, get your shit together. Loved it. And I thought the single, you know, that one of the songs, you know, one day, obviously, is the one that is, is a, you know, I think it will. It will sort of be a slow burner and hopefully we'll um, get more airplay and everything. But hopefully look forward to your next album and, and you know, it will. Uh, and hopefully you'll get to tour, which would be just amazing. So, yeah, I, I would love to. And like I said, um, I really want to come over to the UK, you know what I mean, and play and, and bring it on. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and and bring something to the people. I think they'll really dig my live show. Yeah, you know, definitely, um, definitely. So look, well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, Hunt, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been quite an epic. Um, so look, it's been great to speak to you, and um, I think I think I'm going to go to bed soon. There you go. <laughs> so thank you, and. Um, on a side note, are you going to do some editing for these phone dropouts and stuff? Yeah, I'll put. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll sort out those little moments. But anyway, it's it's um, it's a it's a, it's been a great. Apart from that, the reception has been amazing. So, uh, thank you ever so much for your time, and also yeah. just thank you for your music. You know, let's face it, your, uh, your music's going to live. Welcome, <laughs> you're more than welcome. Let me ask you something. Yeah, off the off the record and off the show. Um, can you send me a copy of this show? Yes. Oh God, yeah. I'll send you a link, and then you can, you can have it. Okay. And, and you can um, use it. Okay. You you have my do it on email or on my phone or how do you want to do it? Oh, I I messaged you. Yeah, I used that Facebook thing, didn't I? Okay. I'm not much. I can go on Facebook and find it. What about, do you have, what's your email address then? Okay. It's the hunt, the hunt sales memorial at gmail.com. Oh, good old Gmail. Um, the hunt. Oh yeah. The hunt, the hunt sales memorial. Okay. I'll, I'll, um, I'll use that actually. Um, cause I prefer email. Really. So look, I will email you 
the link and then you can always use it and um yeah because I've, I've sort of seen bits and pieces and i've listened to quite a few of your interviews recently so it's been nice but um look take care of yourself i'm really pleased you're clean and rocking and your oh, voice yeah. the voice thank is sounding you. good thank you i i appreciate i appreciate the respect and um and anything you know what i'm saying especially take the time out to interview me and, and um, put me on your show. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then. I don't take, I don't take it lightly. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you. Look, God bless and um, keep well. Okay. I hope to see you in person. Yes, definitely. Take care. Hunt. Oh. See you later. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. And that is how you say goodbye. Well, kind of. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, you need a medal. Um, that was me in conversation, you probably guessed by now, with Hunt Sells, who's um, just one amazing guy. So um, a big thank you for giving me the time for that. Uh, this has been David East of the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived, just in case you want to hear more chat. God, so much chat. Um, yeah, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, that's the trip. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. Thanks a lot. Bye.